reduced to a thing that wants Virginia. I composed a beautiful letter to you in the sleepless nightmare hours of the night and it is all gone. I just miss you in a quite simple, desperate, human way. You're listening to Cultural Corner with Dr. Carey. I just read to you part of a love letter that was written in 1927 by English poet Victoria Sackville West to her lover, famed novelist Virginia Woolf. I'm glad that you're tuning in because we have some really fascinating content to talk about. One of the focal topics in today's episode is the language of love. Now, this episode marks a turn in our course. In the first few episodes, we've laid the foundation for what cultural anthropology is really all about. So you've gotten a sense of what the discipline is, how broad it is in scope, and the generations long debate of whether it's a science or a humanity. We've learned about the idea of culture and its social, uh, material, and symbolic dimensions, something that is at the very core of anthropological thinking. And in uh, our, our most recent episode, we spent time talking about an anthropologist's toolkit the kinds of methods that are used in field work as well as different ethnographic writing styles that are used to represent the communities that we study with sensitivity, empathy, and in great detail. So really folks, our journey into cultural anthropology has just begun. From here on out, we're gonna be looking into the complex dimensions of culture through specialty topics that cultural anthropologists engage with. So starting off this new segment of the course is the topic of language. What I'd like to do first is give you some sort of background for how anthropologists look at language, and then we can talk a little bit about how it is situated in ethnography. So we all know that virtually all animals communicate with each other. I even see it in my cat's behavior. Uh, They stand by their food and water station, sort of staring at me when it's time for it to be refreshed. You may have even heard how dolphins produce a unique clicking uh, or squeaking vocal sounds. And whales have even been found to sing uh, unique sorts of songs. Our closest non-human primate relatives uh, like chimps, orangs, uh, bonobos, and gorillas, communicate with each other and humans uh, using vocalizations and gestures. But non-human primates lack all of the biological components necessary for human-level sound and speech and language. Specifically lacking is the certain type of activation of the FOXP2 gene, uh, which is sometimes referred to as the language gene, uh, because it controls movement of the tongue, vocal cords, and lips. Uh, Many vertebrates have the FOXP2 gene, but this special mutation that controls for speech is found only in archaic Homo sapiens, so like Neanderthals, as well as modern humans. Now, paleontologists do tell us that this gene was probably switched on, 
at least 150,000 years ago when anthropologists believe human language emerged. The way humans communicate is different than what we find throughout the animal kingdom. Human language is symbolic, meaning it's, uh, it has a profound historical and cultural meaning. Humans have the capacity to transmit culture and communicate the depth of the soul through language. So humans use language creatively even in stories, myths, poetry, and song. And language is perhaps one of the most fundamental aspects of being human. Without language, that love letter uh, between Sackville West and Wolf would not exist. In fact, anthropologists believe that culture probably wouldn't exist either because language has been such an effective uh, vehicle to transmit culture. Anthropologists who specialize in the study of human languages are referred to as linguistic anthropologists. And you might recall linguistics from earlier podcasts where we framed it as one of the four major subfields of anthropology. But in a general sense, what linguistic anthropologists do is study a language's vocabulary, grammar, writing, but also nonverbal communication. I'd like to ask you to take pause for a moment and just think about how much you rely on nonverbal communication to relay feelings, ideas, and messages. Does the degree to which you use nonverbal communication vary depending on setting, context, or maybe even uh, age? Now, interestingly, linguistic anthropologists tell us that as much as 90% of the emotional information we communicate is nonverbal. Uh, sometimes nonverbal communication is referred to as kinesics, which explores gestures, body language, facial expressions, uh, and even bodily postures. In Barbara Meyerhoff's piece, Number Our Days, from our methods unit, we see how important nonverbal communication is among the elderly. According to Meyerhoff, she says, and I'll quote her here, an exceptionally important part of one's information is derived from nonverbal communication uh, because of the declining bodily state. It's equally important among young children who are still learning rules for language and rules for behavior. So, uh, for example, some years ago, I used to teach very young elementary level uh, students. We use a number of nonverbal cues in the classroom, like eye talk, a posture, maybe bringing an index finger to our lips to hush a classroom chatter, uh, and even asking students to raise their hand, which has a symbolic dimension. It symbolizes, right, the desire to participate. We even train our students to recognize certain hand clap patterns that alert them that it's time to uh, hush or that it's time to focus their attention on the teacher. So if you were to be outside my classroom way back in those days, you'd hear me say something like, clap once if you can hear me. Then a few students would clap once, and then I would probably have to say, clap twice if you can hear me. 
which would cue more students in. And on really frustrating days, I probably had to say, clap three times if you can hear me, and so on until the class's attention was captured. All of the little nonverbal methods used by elementary school teachers reinforce norms expected in the classroom and enculturate young ones into society. This week's learning materials really orient you with specialties that are nested within the field of linguistics, like historical linguistics, which endeavors to study how language uh, has developed and changed over time. Um, descriptive linguists uh, are specialized in listening to and recording languages in order to understand their structure. But the social dimension of language is explored in a specialty that we call sociolinguistics. I want to center the rest of today's talk really on sociolinguists, uh, uh, what they do and the kinds of things they study. It's a specialty that operates at the intersection between culture and language. So as we're working through some of the issues, you might want to think about the ways in which language differs by categories like age, race, class, gender, sexuality, uh, and maybe even ethnicity. There are some uh, really interesting studies that you'll be able to read more about. Uh, gendered speech or the different ways in which men and women use language is part of sociolinguistics. So I might ask you for a minute to think about the ways in which you've observed gendered speech patterns uh, in your own life. Anthropologists are interested in how and why language differs among men and women. Deborah Tannen's book uh, titled You Just Don't Understand Women and Men in Conversation, uh, which came out uh, in 2001, is kind of a striking look at these differences. And her standing on it is that the speech chasm between men and women is so great at times that when we communicate with the opposite gender, it in ways uh, sort of feels like a kind of cross-cultural communication, almost to the extent that talking with a different gender may be a kind of ethnographic encounter in and of itself. So that's kind of interesting to think about. The last issue we want to lay out before we start talking about uh, those love letters that I mentioned uh, is an urgent issue, and that being language loss. There are nearly 7,000 languages spoken in the world today, but half of these may be extinct by the end of this century. We're really losing languages at an alarming rate. Languages die with the last living speaker unless they're recorded and preserved for future generations. The Documentation Center of Indigenous Languages at the National Museum of Brazil has extensively archived audio recordings and documents of indigenous languages uh, in South America since the 1950s. But sadly, in 2018, a catastrophic fire destroyed that museum. It seems like the source of the fire was ultimately traced to a faulty air conditioning unit that was located in the museum's auditorium and the ruins of the museum are actually being treated as if they were an archaeological site. 
So archaeologists have been brought in to salvage any surviving cultural items. But the entire language archive uh, was incinerated by the blaze. And without recordings, you can never uh, recover an extinct language. So this is a very big loss for anthropology, but I think the incident highlights that knowledge is not protected forever. There's an urgent need uh, to acquire funds to cover the cost of digitizing backups to avoid a complete erasure again. Uh, museums around the world have been affected by steep budget cuts to make savings, uh, which unfortunately has left all of the knowledge housed in museums uh, in peril and very vulnerable. We'll pivot our discussion in the second segment to how two types of anthropologists, cultural anthropologists and archaeologists, used love letters as a line of cultural data. Uh, we mentioned earlier in this episode how the complexity of human language can be wielded to articulate the depths of the human heart and soul. The language of love is most compelling. And I think love letters are really a, a, a kind of sweet example of what we mean by this. Laura A. Hearn's article on love letters in Nepal demonstrates how language and culture are shaped by belonging to a certain category, in this case, belonging to youth culture. But several generations ago, arranged and capture marriage had been a traditional modes of marriage in Nepal prior to this uh, women's literacy movement uh, that really began in the 1980s. And it's interesting because Ahern writes on the emotion of love that, quote, romantic love was considered an emotion of which to be embarrassed. But as we already know, uh, cultures change. They're not static. Now, there, there was this move in Nepal to teach young women literacy beginning in about the 1980s, which really led to the practice of love letter writing. As it turns out, there it was such a demand uh, among young adults uh, for these sort of love letter how-to guidebooks that stores were actually selling out of inventory. The love letters mark a, a new kind of courtship ritual amongst young uh, Nepalis that is full of open desire, longing, romance, and yes, love. A letter written by Beer, a 21-year-old man, to his love interest, Sarita, provides the most intimate insight into this new emerging language of love in Nepal. And I'll read you just, just one of my favorite parts of it. Beer says, Sarita, I am helpless, and I have to make friends of a notebook and pen in order to place this helplessness before you. Love is the sort of thing that anyone can feel. And then he goes on to say in, in a later part of it, Love is the agreement between two souls. I am offering you an invitation to love. 
But these love letters uh, uh, usher a sort of shift to companionate marriage. So getting married for reasons of love rather than maybe social or economic mobility. Through love letters, Ahern shows how the emotion of love, a source of almost shame and embarrassment for older generations, how the emotion of love now is kind of trending. The emotion of love became intertwined with youth culture and was viewed uh, by Nepalis as this kind of symbol of modernity. I want to talk with you about how letters have been used in a different context by anthropologists. So we're going to talk a little bit about how archaeologists have used letters in their work. There was a fascinating archaeological site uh, at the present-day Doan Academy in Burlington City, New Jersey. And that site was excavated by Richard Grubb and Associates, uh, led by archaeologist Michael Gall. A reading for this was not assigned for you, uh, but if you want to follow up, you can find the article written by Gall and colleagues in the Journal of Historical Archaeology. Really, what I want to do is just give you a, a sense of how archaeologists can also use letters, including letters that are probably romantic in nature in their research. So we're, we're rewinding the clock and, and traveling to the 19th century. Uh, in 1837, there was a school that operated at the site of the current Doan Academy under the name of St. Mary's Hall. Um, in the 19th century, it was a secondary sleepaway school for girls who were uh, between the ages of 10 and 20 years. It later became a co-ed school uh, in the mid-20th century when the school was renamed the Doan Academy, uh, which today is still the, uh, the school's current operating name. Girls enrolled in the 19th century St. Mary's Hall era were expected to be rather obedient and abide by school rules and policies. So, for example, they couldn't wear jewelry or perfume, uh, they weren't really permitted to even go home. Um, obviously, drinking was not allowed. Uh, they weren't allowed to really spend money. So we get a sense it was a pretty uh, rigidly strict academic environment at St. Mary's in the 19th century. In uh, 2014, archaeologists returned to the site and identified uh, material deposits that were connected to the St. Mary's era. Archaeologists sort of uh, guided their research by the question of simply what were the experiences of these young women who attended the school in the 19th century? Um, interestingly enough, uh, they recovered a number of objects that would probably be considered contraband by the school's headmaster. So they did find alcohol bottles, perfume bottles. Um, archaeologists even discovered a cache of 20th century cigarettes uh, located inside a wall of one of the old dorms uh, that at that time uh, were, were currently being renovated. But perhaps most uh, compelling was the rich documentary uh, record that's been archived at the Doan Academy. Uh, these were mainly letters and really provide an insider's perspective of what life at school was like. 
It seems like school administrators uh, and faculty really didn't inspect any of the letters that were written by the girls who were enrolled at St. Mary's. So in this way, we can read the love letters almost like what we would call a hidden transcript. So meaning an organized, focused, a secret form of communication carried out by young women students that sort of chips away at the hegemonic structure enforced by the school. So one letter records a secret gift giving between students and faculty, and maybe perhaps with the expectation that the student uh, would receive a higher grade. Other letters that were exchanged uh, between students sort of document how much fun these girls had uh, while engaging in rebellious activities like sneaking out in the middle of the night. But maybe the most compelling of all of these letters, in my opinion, is what archaeologists think might be a love letter. Uh, it's a letter that's written in prose, so it's very poetic, uh, by one young woman student named Emily to another young woman student, Julia. And it's dated July 21st, 1838. I'll read you uh, just a small passage of it. So it reads, And now I know my love to thee, till life itself shall end, and sure the heart which is the seat of love like mine can never rove. Its faithful pulse may cease to beat, but never, never cease to love. Now, curiously enough, archaeologists recovered a purple glass a love token from the site inscribed with the words, love to thee. And love to thee is a phrase that appears verbatim uh, in Emily's uh, uh, poetic letter to Julia. One way archaeologists have interpreted uh, that letter and the token is a telling example of female affection and perhaps indicating a romantic relationship between the two young women that most surely would have been considered taboo in the 19th century. Taken as a whole, um, all of the letters uh, capture how these girls resisted, albeit in secrecy, uh, how they resisted their schools and society's vision for what a young woman should be. So I like both Ahern's example from Nepal and the example from uh, the Doan Academy because they give you a nice sense of how anthropologists in general sort of read love letters and incorporate them as a data set that illuminates uh, a, an emic or insider's perspective. Ahern shows us how love letters written by young Nepalis demonstrate how the emotion of love is uh, emblematic or goes hand in hand with modernity. Uh, they indicate a social transformation from arranged to companionate marriage. Whereas the hidden transcript letters from the Doan Academy uh, provide archaeologists with insight to activities girls had to hide from public view, uh, like same-sex romantic relationships. I'd like to thank you for tuning in to this week's episode of Cultural Corner with Dr. Kerry. I hope that you all have a flourishing week and be well. Bye-bye.